0: Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine Podcast Radio. You're about to listen to a new episode of Audio Signals. Get ready to take a journey into the known, the unknown, and everything in between. Recorded at no specific point in time nor space, ITSP Magazine's co-founders Marco Ciappelli and Sean Martin follow their passion and curiosity. As they venture away from the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society to discover new stories worth being told. Knowledge is power now more than ever.
1: Alrighty, here we are uh, with a, with a guest that has already been with me before, not too long ago, so. Once we get into representing who she is and what she does, I will invite you to go back on a different channel, but there'll be the link into the notes here to go listen to our first conversation, which, which you know, guess what? It's, it's connected. So we'll uh, you'll understand what I'm talking about. For people listening... The guest is uh, Dr. Deborah Thompson. She's a veterinarian, but also the founder of the One Health Lessons, non-profit organization, which is what we spoke about in the past episode. And she also wrote, I think, several books, but today we're going to talk about one in particular. And for those watching, here we are. We're right here. So say hi. And uh, Deborah, welcome back. Are I you am there?
2: back. I am back for. Okay.
1: So a little introduction about yourself for the audience that haven't heard the first episode.
2: Sure. Um, oh, wow. Well, I'm in Washington, D.C. and I see a presidential um, <laughs> procession going right by. Uh, we know sorry.
1: you're not lying. We know you're not lying.
2: <laughs> that was a lot of course just then. Um, <laughs> but nice to see you again, Marco. And hello, everybody. I am Dr. Deborah Thompson, right based out of the Washington, D.C. area. Um, Just last time we spoke about One Health Lessons, a nonprofit that inspires children and adults around the world to um, value the connection between our health and the health of the environment, animals and plants. Um, But today we're going to be talking about a book that I wrote called The Art of Science Communication.
1: So, like I said, it's connected. We we talked last time about the fact that this symbiosis and synergy between everything on this planet, it should be common sense, but it's not. But once you see it, you cannot unsee it anymore. And we talk about kids that you're teaching you and, and all the people part of the volunteers of the organization and how kids are like kind of like a rake moment where everything starts well not everything but many things start to make more sense about the environment and animals and health and all of that so but but what you do when you teach to these kids is you You have to break the conversation. You have to use different metaphor. You have to use different example depending on their age group and and so forth. We talked about this again. And so, yes, I think communication is an art. Either you are an advertiser, you're a writer, you are any person that is in charge of sharing uh, knowledge. So why you thought it was needed for you to write this book?
2: Right. Thanks, Marco, for this. Um, (laughs) I feel like there are people who are very good at science communication and that's their job. But what about all the other science and STEM advocates out there? People who do this science and STEM as a living. Does that mean that we clinicians, we researchers, we whatever, fill in the blank, can't be proficient in communication? Would we rather have a third party Speak on our behalf, or would we rather speak our truth directly to the target audience? And so, this book is designed to improve the communication skills of STEM um, professionals.
1: So, does it come first, the communicator, or or first the expert? Is it first the hag or the
2: (laughs) (laughs) right? I think ultimately the way we need to start to train scientists, aspiring scientists and aspiring STEM folks is to infuse communication every step of the way. So that way it just becomes second nature. But here's the problem. If you look at our professors, it's not to say that they're the best communicators. So how can you fix that cycle? That just seems to be never ending. Right. Yep. So, um, what happened with this book is after I finished uh, my time on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., working on One Health legislation and policy at the federal level, um, I was writing note, notes upon notes upon notes of lessons learned. I always do that at the end of every single project that I do. I write down lessons learned. And the thing is, these notes just kept going on and on and on. And I'm looking at them and I'm like, this needs to be shared. So the entire third section of the book is dedicated to people coming from science, technology, engineering, mathematics, who want to eventually speak with politicians, speak with policymakers and their staff, and make sure that they deliver their message in an efficient manner to get what needs to be done, done.
1: And that's really important. I can tell you, in a lot of our audience, uh, because our origin as ITSP Magazine are in the cybersecurity industry, and there's always this thing about, A, communicating very technical issues to people that are not technical about that. They are in charge of their business, running business, and you need to tell stories. It's about storytelling, right? So... On the other hand, you have situation where the legislator, as you mentioned, they may not be knowledgeable enough about a topic, but they're still making important decision for us. So how do we how do we address that?
2: Right. And this is where our last podcast together about One Health Lessons plays in, because my exposure to the classroom truly made a difference in how I practice Veterinary Medicine Today, how I worked on Capitol Hill, um, how I really process information. So actually this book is divided into three different sections. The first part is how to deliver science to students. Because if you wanna speak with a politician or somebody of incredible influence, you need to make sure that you communicate efficiently and effectively. And one of the best ways to do that is to speak with kids. Kids are honest. They're going to show you if they're bored. They're going (laughs) to show you if they're confused, right? They're going to ask lots of questions. But people who are very well-known in their career, who have political influence, they're not going to be as forthcoming. They're not going to show you that they don't know what you're talking about. They're going to be just, Yes, 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 next, right? Mm-hmm. So, one of the best ways to make sure that your skill set as a communicator is as strong as possible is to go into classrooms and talk during career day <laughs> about what you do on a daily basis, right? Speak with kids. Um, so, that's the first section of the book. The second section of the book is how to speak with the public but same principles are you know, aligned. Again, an eight year old's attention span is how short? <laughs> well, guess what? Adults are just as short. <laughs> so again, it's the kids that really show you how effective, how efficient you actually are as a communicator. And if mm-hmm. you can perfect your communication skills with that type of audience, you're gonna be that much stronger when you speak with adults.
1: Okay. So do you give uh, specific tips on, uh, I mean, are you actually asking people that, that here's the homework go talk to kids? Or do you say, well, if you don't have the time or access to a class or, or kids, uh, here are the things that you can start practicing mm-hmm. on on yourself, like
2: Yes, it's any.
1: A, I'm sure it's full of tips. So let's let's not give up the old book, obviously, but that's us <laughs> tease enough. So people are like, hey, this could be interesting.
2: Yes. There are other um, ways to go about if you can't speak with a child about your um, thesis statements, you know, your your thesis for your postdoc or your doctorate. Um, what are other target audience that are just as honest? It's listed in the book so that you can find a group of honest adults in a safe environment that can provide good feedback.
1: So let's make a difference between, so this book you said you have different chapter and it's, uh, or section. In this section you're talking about if you're talking to the public in general, maybe journalists, uh, you know, you're invited on a show on on. NBC or whatever it is to talk about an important topic. So how do you break it down for everybody to understand? But then you have uh, the target in, t- in mind, another audience, which is kids and students. And another one is legislator. So you work with legislator. So give me a couple of you know, your experience that caused you to take these notes and say, okay, I really need to work on a book like this because these are like, what would I have done different? Or, oh, I did this right. So Right. Like, are there like a very delimited uh, line between and I I mean, I assume the answer is yes. But what are they? So well, which is later, kids, uh, general public, what, what do you do different to start with? What right. kind of hats you put on?
2: Right. And I should say that my position and the reason why I wrote this book was so unique that you're not going to find it in many places, let alone have it published because I wasn't a scientist going into Capitol Hill, into offices and talking to them about One Health. No, no, no. I was on the policy side. I was working in a senior senator's office and she was one of the most powerful senators of all of the US Congress. Um, And I was one of, actually, I was the only person with a true science background, like a professional science background, and I was working in policy. So what does that mean? I was constantly the person in the room receiving constituents, receiving lobbyists, receiving people who want to move the needle in science, technology, engineering, mathematics, because I was the person with that background, including clinicians like physicians, like human medicine, right? And veterinary medicine and pharmaceuticals, all of that, they all came to me. And oftentimes after the meeting ended, my colleague who was in the room with me, turns to me and, you know, after the constituent leaves and says, Deb, can you translate this for us? Hmm. Why is this important to us? Why should we care? Why should we act? How should we act? Is this worth it? And I was thinking that happens so often that I need to make sure that the people who are taking that extra effort to speak with influencers, politicians, legislators, whatever they are, can actually hit the target, right? Can actually make sure that they can convey their message in a way that can be used and useful for that influencer.
1: So Yeah, because the point is, why do you do that? Right, like a lot of people i don't know if you look in the past too it, being uh, knowledgeable it was almost like part of being part of an elite of it, it was almost and i'm thinking like 1800 1700 but i can go in the middle age where knowledge was really power now we say knowledge is power because we need to have that knowledge but at the time if you own the culture and the knowledge, you own everything else, and you didn't want to share it, right? So thank to Gutenberg and the press and the mobile press and all of that. But now, I mean, this can make the difference between passing a law, protecting certain minorities, could be taking action, could be getting funded, right? So... (laughs) some of uh, maybe some some of this example why if somebody needs to be convinced to say you know i really i know i know but i need to share it show other people that i know
2: <laughs> honestly marco even lobbyists who've been doing this for 30 years have read the book and they said holy cow i've learned something and i wish this existed at the start of my career hmm. so it's an insider's perspective that honestly I don't know where else you could find it because I was trying to find that before starting this position on the Hill and it didn't exist.
1: Hmm. But I've seen, and I can go on Amazon right now while I'm talking to you. And if I put the art of science communication, there is a quite a number of books that come up. Some are more about the medical field. Some are, I don't know, rocket engineering, rocket science. But do you feel like there is a common thread that, it doesn't matter what is your field, that's what you need to do to communicate.
2: Yeah, I feel like there are certainly some general principles for communication in this book, but also specifically for STEM advocates. But this book is truly unique. And I mean, even look at the cover. Look at the diversity on the cover. Yeah. Yeah. And the perspective when you're looking at this is the audience. It's not the scientist, it's the audience.
1: So the, the focus is on, on the audience. i not telling people how to do it, but it, I feel like it's a kind of like learning how to read your audience. And I'm connecting to our first conversation and change gears, switch gears, depending on who you're talking to.
2: That's exactly it. You need to read the room first, right? <laughs> when I train interns with One Health Lessons, for instance, I say that one of the first things that you should do if you want to be the strongest communicator is to close your mouth and open your ears and eyes.
1: Hmm.
2: Yeah, that's by far the first thing. Have them speak first and then you can tailor your message to your audience once you understand your audience, right? Um, when it comes to the politicians, the influencers of any which way, um, they're influencing, it's important to also know certain things about their background. And that's also covered in the book.
1: Can you give us some, uh, you know, a couple of concrete uh, tips or strategies that, that you do give in the book?
2: Um, so I... Like an t-
1: example that might be very relevant.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, I talk about in the book, uh, there's climate change, Right and how there is the man-made impact of climate change. Now, you can't just jump into talking about different isotopes of carbon-13 and 14 with non-scientists, let alone non-chemists. People don't remember what isotopes are from high school or from junior high, for instance. But the take-home message is that if you explain that scientists have a way to capture a particular part of carbon in the atmosphere or a gas in the atmosphere, they can identify its ultimate source and they could see if it was decaying matter or if it was living matter. And then they can extrapolate if that was from originally fossil fuels and so on. It's not just you know um, a general idea of sampling and then, oh, that comes from fossil fuels. No, there's that extra stuff that I think People need to understand. They do testing on it to then identify its original source.
1: Otherwise, it yeah. just sounds like it's magic, right? Like uh, C. Clark when he say, "You know, it is complicated enough. It may sound magic to people, but right. it's really not magic." Although I think science is magic in its own way, but you know that's a different story. You know, when I talk about hear about quantum computing, that's a good example. You know, I taught to professor there are teacher of quantum, and I have, you know, I know very little, I, but I'm like, look, I'm here, I'm the one that you, I'm the right person to, to be a social, you know, a science communication, uh, you know, uh, guinea pig with, so this is me, right, yeah. but I, I'm assuming with kids, it's, it's, I love that idea of experimenting really with kids because you don't get any false feedback, right? I, I think that's that's incredible. You said something at the beginning that kind of made me think um, about how do you put this into the student path to become the expert and sprinkle communication in there? Because there are certain uh, it's a college path where, of course, communication is a little bit more key than other. But now we are at the point where we are all influencers. We are all going to podcasts. We are all talking about this to people that are not necessarily your peers. So that, that's where you make that big difference. So how do, how do you see the colleges and all the, the curriculum responding to this need? Do you see it happen, or do you think you we're not there yet?
2: Oh, we are absolutely not there yet. But I see a path forward. I see as just simple questions scattered throughout the, a day in the class of uh, a scientist, or uh, a week, or a semester, ask yourself, how would you explain this to your next-door neighbor? How would you explain this to your grandmother, right, or grandfather, to your child, whoever it is? Can you do it? And then I'll give you an example um, of my path towards improving my communication skills. I was, oh, this is about 15 years ago. Even though I have done um, music and I was used to being on stage in that capacity, I was drastically afraid, like, I could not get on stage if I was going to speak. I was beyond fearful. Stage fright, if I had to speak, if I had to play music, it would have been totally fine. Hmm. Okay, so I go to veterinary school. I learn all of the medical jargon. I speak with veterinary students, veterinarians. I speak with medical students and physicians. That's my world. I do an internship, 80, 90 hour work weeks, in the clinic, that's my world. The thing is, whenever I was speaking with pet owners, I was having a lot of difficulty conveying the reason why I needed to do certain tests to benefit the animal. And I was thinking, why, why am I not, I know all this stuff, but how could I just not bring it, get it out, right? How could they not understand what I know? Right? Mm -hmm. What I ended up doing was I joined something called Toastmasters. I don't know if you're familiar with Toastmasters, but it's advertised as a public speaking club. It's in over 111 countries. Um, But it's more than that. It's a communication club. I joined Toastmasters because I wanted to become a better veterinarian. I wanted to speak on behalf of my patients who were silent. Right, mm. My patients are covered in fur, scales, feathers, <laughs> whatever it is, but they can't talk. So how could I become a better communicator? I practiced a lot. I practiced two hours every week for seven years. So I was a Toastmaster for seven years. And with that, I was able to not only improve the health care of my own patients because I could convey why certain things need to be done right? And open up the conversation with pet owners of, would this work for your family? Would this not work? What can work, right? And that way you can build trust as well uh, between the clinician and the family of the patient. But that's ultimately why I started in uh, science communication. Before that, I was teaching, but that's not you already know your kids, you know, you already know your students, your 30 students that in my mind, wasn't truly public speaking. That was just leading uh, a group of students to improve their English skills or their musical abilities or whatnot. But, um, once I joined Toastmasters, then I truly figured out, Oh, that's what I need to do in order to move the needle, and then years later, I go to Capitol Hill and I'm on the receiving end of these poor communicators. Mm. And so, in this book, I'm combining life as uh, you know, an educator, speaking with the public, and speaking with legislators.
1: Was I, like trends, I like that. I like that. So people can get different perspectives here from Different. from your from your experience because again it's so right, let's go back to the basic right communication it is it can be a one way channel but most of the time it's a two way channel so it's a one way oh, yeah. it's a one way channel when you're I don't know I'm picturing like an old radio program where people couldn't call in and you're telling a story or reporting a news or whatever and you have absolutely zero feedback until maybe the day after when you're like wow you did a great job or wow that really sucked because we had no idea what you talked about but now communication is quite different i mean especially when you say you're in a room with someone we're on video i can see you reacting moving i'm like hmm am i making any sense here and then i can see your you know your eyes and and, and all of that but uh, you, you said something also about the fact that teaching for you maybe wasn't really public speaking. But may I argue that even if you're talking to your neighbor, you you're still public speaking. I mean, I, you, you're still trying to make your point. It's I don't know. I mean, am I going somewhere with this? Like it, it would improve every aspect of your life, not just the moment that you're actually speaking public. Like, let's define public, maybe.
2: Yes, yes, and um, I see where you're going with that. I think um, nowadays, compared to 10 years ago, even, um, there's been an uh, increased interest in uh, improving communication skills within organizations Mm -hmm. um, and within family units (laughs) and within, you know, relationships of any kind, romantic or or platonic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like perhaps our culture, our society, has changed a little bit in that way. So, in that regard, yeah, I can see what you mean when you say when you're speaking with your neighbor. Um, is that truly public communication? Um, or I think it, it's it comes down to opening opening up a respectful and comfortable environment so that you can have open and honest conversations and learn from each other.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, the reason why I want to go there is because I feel like you, you don't need to be someone that needs to speak in public to a mass, to a mass in a mass media on a radio, on a podcast, on TV or on a stage What I'm trying to say is like, I think that reading a book like this, it could improve everybody's uh, relationship, no matter what. Uh, You go to the grocery store, you have that two minutes conversation with the cashier. You may come out as brilliant, funny, and knowledgeable about something, or you can come away with, you know, I was just staring on my phone with my headset, don't talk to me because I'm not in the mood, but it's your choice. (laughs) <laughs> right. At least you have that tool to do that, and the reason why I'm saying this is also because you said you you did it because you could talk one on one with your with your patient. So mm-hmm. when you're in a little room at the vet, and I go often because I got three dogs, it's like you know, it's not really in public, but you are one on one there. So that improved what you were doing.
2: It it truly improved um, what I was doing on an every day. Honestly, every half an hour. Uh, period. Oh, look who wants to join!
1: Oh, there you go. <laughs> Hello. <Maybe you're laughs> to join.
2: Um, but I feel like those lessons learned uh started years, years, years ago, and then I um, still apply the same principles today in clinical medicine because I still do clinical medicine in addition to the nonprofit.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Before we make a call to action for the book. Uh, I do have a question because I'm a big fan. I mean, I, I love storytelling in every possible way from Disney to the stereotypes, uh, you know, to archetypes, to metaphors that you can use to tell a story. And when you watch a movie, for example, that's that's what we do. You know, the, the way you tell a story Star Wars is the same way you tell a story of the Green Brothers. It's, it's still like that ups and down, It's about to end, but so, is that a good advice to tell people that when they talk, even about, I don't know what they ate today for lunch, to think about it as, am I telling a story? Am I starting somewhere? Am I getting there? or am I over am I overcomplicating by thinking that way? what's your advice there
2: uh, stories are incredibly powerful right i mean that's just part of human nature that's how we have grown uh throughout the many 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 generations that we have you know as a human uh, race has experienced right um so I think it's very important to understand not only in the importance, but also understand how to harness the energy that goes into a story and make sure that the take home of that story is powerful. Something that makes people think and remember the story long after you're done with the last word. I so remember
1: You're not overthinking it.
2: No, no, Um, no, not at all. Right. (laughs) Um, But I remember um, working on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., and there were some really powerful personal stories. And some of them actually came from teenagers or children who came into the office with their with their parents and with their nonprofits. And I still remember them today.
1: why do you think you remember those and not other i'm just assuming some stick with you more than than other and and the reason why i'm asking you this is because i think that there is the story and there is the way you deliver that story Mm -hmm. so do you talk about the delivery as well in this book i'm assuming when you do this Toastmaster. A lot is about taking the right pause and using not only, you know, their body language and being, being Italian here. I can do this with my hands <laughs> for people listening. I'm actually being Italian with my hands. And, and, and so do, do you think that you remember certain stories just because they're really better story or because they were be- given to you with more passion and maybe more, I don't know, with a better delivery? But the core of the story, maybe maybe got highlighted, but other story maybe deserved that too, but they didn't make it through.
2: Well, Marco, that's why it's an art. You're not just reading the words on the page. You're feeling the message, right? Um, And communication, I could just, you know, I could just read an instruction manual. Sure, that's communication. (laughs) Or I could be reading poetry, And I could be uh, um, bored out of my mind or I could be really into it, right? It comes down to not only what you're saying, but how you're saying it and how you make the other person feel. Mm -hmm. And does that extra last step, does that lead to action? Mm. That's your goal, lead to action.
1: Yeah, I love love that. I I think it's a... There is a lot of, uh, of thinking here that will be left once we once we say goodbye to the audience. I'm, I'm hoping, and that's why I have this conversation. I have every podcast. If we leave people thinking for a couple of minutes about what we talked about and say, hey, I could do this. I, I can look more into that in the way that I talk, in the way that I talk about things. And, and maybe another thing is why you need to choose the right topic that you're passionate about. I mean, there may be people that are called actor. You can get Morgan Freeman probably reading you the ingredients on a bottle of (laughs) of whatever, (laughs) and it would sound very interesting. I don't know if he's going to win a Pulitzer or any other other prize or an Oscar for it, but I'm sure it will grab the attention. But those are other skills that we're talking about. I mean, uh, so talking about that, who do you think should – read this book? I mean, my opinion is everybody could read it, but am I am I wrong? Am I just being very kind and very promotional here? Or, or do you think that when you wrote these, you had a specific target in mind? Who do you wrote it for?
2: Um, well, certainly everybody's the right answer, right? <laughs> but honestly, I... Know that this book has been bought for hundreds of scientists who are going into policy each year by AAAS, though, the American Association for the for the Advancement of Science. Super long title. AAAS is the way to say it. Make it, it easy. <laughs> right. But this book is actually in the welcome package for them when they become workers who are throughout the executive branch of uh, the United States government. So working at the U S department of agriculture, the um, national institutes of health, the um, environmental protection agency, you know, wherever they're working, they have this book. Um, But also those scientists who had the position that I have had working on Capitol Hill with Congress. So they also have this book. Um, Any any university that has a policy department, public policy, health policy, whatever whatever policy it is, this book would, ser- would serve you well. Last but not least, anybody who's interested in STEM, science, technology, engineering, mathematics would benefit from this book because Lord knows what we do in STEM can get very complicated very quickly. And if we only speak within our niche field, how far can we actually go with this knowledge, right? We have Mm -hmm. to make sure that we're not relying on a third party professional science communicators to deliver our message. We need to enable ourselves and empower ourselves to deliver the message.
1: Yeah, I, I, I wanna actually end this conversation by thinking how much we could improve our society by making more digestible and understandable what goes behind the scene. I mean, not everybody needs to be a quantum scientist. Not everybody needs to be a veterinarian clinician or surgeon or whatever. I mean, everybody, there is a reason why you have to study more. But if you at least grasp what it is about, I think we could we could easily fight back against misinformation, against manipulation of information, fake news, fake everything. And I know I'm going a little bit on what my terrain is, which is sociology, but I think it's all connected, you know. So, again, you, you're you doing this for STEM, but this applies to literally every other possible discipline because it could be a lawyer that explain you a regulation in a way that you understand it, and not just say, "Well, it like it's like this because it's like this." Well, so what, right? Yeah. So, I say knowledge is power. So, I am actually quite interested in uh, in actually reading this and see what I get out of this and uh, so let, let's do a little uh, a little reminder here the title of the book where they can find it and of course um, once this is all done there'll be notes when we publish this so you can actually click and go check the book learn more about Deborah but to finish this I'm going to give you uh, the stage and uh, please do your close for me close for me I don't want to come back
2: Awesome. Thank you. Um, the book is entitled The Art of Science Communication, and the subtitle is actually sharing knowledge with students, the public and policymakers. It's available on Amazon and and I feel like Marco's right. Honestly, this is appropriate for anybody who wants to get their message out there beyond their niche field. So thank you, Marco for having me on this
1: wonderful podcast. Oh, it's always a pleasure. So you can come back anytime you want. And uh, as far as uh, people listening right now, this was an Audio Signals podcast where we often talk about books, but we also talk about podcasting and mass media and uh, anything that actually I'm interested in. Sometimes it's just me, sometimes it's uh, Sean and myself. And usually there's a good, uh, fascinating guest one or two sometimes that uh, tell us a good story. And of course, this was a good story, uh, The Art of Science Communication. I said I was not going to come back, but I am because I have to tell you, subscribe to share this story if you like that. I'm sure other people will enjoy it. And uh, yeah, buy the book. Why not? Then you can come on the podcast and be a great communicator. Better than me, by the way, that's for sure. So... Deborah, thank you so much. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And uh, we'll be back with another story. Really soon.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of Audio Signals. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSBmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels.